verses 129 to 136. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Special welcome to any of you who may be tuning in to our Wallace service and have not been with us for some weeks. A word of explanation why we're looking at this text. Several weeks ago in our study of 1 Peter, we ran into this phrase, this exhortation to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. And that started us down a bit of an excursion looking at the believer's warfare with indwelling sin. We've said that one way to describe a follower of Christ, a Christian, is that a Christian is a person who through the spoils of Jesus is at peace with God and correspondingly at war with sin. To know Jesus is to correspondingly know an internal battle with what the Bible calls indwelling sin. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you woke up this morning at war. We're struggling with sin. And it would be very reasonable to wonder, what does the person struggling well look like? How would you know if you're fighting sin effectively? I don't want any of you who may be considering Christianity, you're exploring whether or not uh, you want to believe in God, follow Christ. This is a very important question because if you give your life to Christ, you're going to enter into a lifelong conflict with sin. There'll be victory, but there'll also be failure, frustration, and fatigue. Thankfully, the Bible provides us a portrait of the struggler. And I believe it's in this psalm, Psalm 119. How can you tell the person writing this psalm is a struggler, is struggling with sin? That's verse 133. He pleads, let no iniquity have dominion over me. This is a person aware of the reality that sin is still in him. And he's pleading with God that sin not get the better of him. It's almost echoed in that 1 Peter 2, 11 passage we looked at several weeks ago. Don't let 
uh, don't abs- uh, you must abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Here's this war he's aware of. So we're in Psalm 119. This is the longest psalm in the Psalter, which is the longest book in the, in the Bible. These poems were written for singing. This song would take a long time to sing. It's quite lengthy. It comes to us highly ornate. It's an acrostic poem, each stanza starting with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I call this psalm an extended meditation on the source and the nature and the power and the benefits of the written word of God. And if you've ever read through it, you're immediately struck with the obvious. This psalm reveals a person who absolutely loves God's Word. And what's significant about that for those of us who are struggling daily, and will struggle until the day we die, with indwelling sin? I think this is what's significant. The struggler is marked by his relationship with the Word of God. The struggler experiences the power, the sufficiency, the efficacy of the Bible. What it produces is fairly stunning. So here's a summary. If you do a flyover over the whole psalm and you try to summarize it, what kind of person is this? Here's one way you could summarize that person. In spite of suffering, persecution, and affliction, the author of this psalm, by my count, at least 35 times refers to persecution and affliction in his circumstances. In spite of that, this is a person who cherishes the Word of God more than wealth, who cherishes righteousness more than sin, who relishes the character of God and knows God loves him. I actually can't think of a more beneficial way to live than that. Here's the question we're going to unpack. Sort of a long introduction. Because this is the portrait of a person possessed by the word of God, What exactly does he possess? Number one, the portrait of the struggler who is possessed by the word of God possesses discernment of God's truth. Verse 129, your testimonies, one of many synonyms in the psalm, law, uh, precepts, ordinances, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. How does the psalmist know they're wonderful? The source. God's word is from God. It reveals his name that he tells us he loves. God's character. God's self-revelation is trustworthy and true because God is. The next two verses after the stanza we're looking at Uh, The psalmist writes this in 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. 
you've appointed your testimonies in righteousness and all faithfulness. What comes out of God reflects who God is. It has to be that way. God's law, God's testimonies, God's rules, God's commandments could not be anything other than true and faithful and right. (laughs) Now, there's a very critical implication that follows from this. And that is this. The creator has rights over the created. Because the psalmist knows the obvious. He did not create himself. He didn't think up human life. He didn't think up anything about human life. He's an image bearer of the God who created him. Because he knows the obvious, he looks to his creator for instruction. Verse 73, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Translated, let my life be conformed to the design for which you made it, as stipulated by you. That's true freedom. That's true humanity. That's true fulfillment. And moving in concert, thinking, living, being in concert with the way the Creator made you. The struggler is possessed by the Word of God. What does he possess? Number two, disdain for sin. Look at verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He ends the psalm with this verse, 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. So I see a lot of integrity here. He not only disdains the sins of others, but he's honest about his own. By my count, at least eight times throughout the whole psalm, he refers to his own weakness. This must be one of the reasons he pleads with God for mercy. Don't give me what my record and my performance deserve. So the word itself has forged in his heart what I would call a humble, holy hatred of sin. That's a company with fairly strong emotions. I've listed them for you on the outline. I've alluded to hatred, 128. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Why? He ought to hate anything contrary to the glorious character of God. Anger, 53, hot Indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Because God is dishonored by the wicked, others and his own. There's a hate, there's a, an anger, a frustration. He has grief, 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people don't keep your law. His vision of God is such that God is deserving and worthy of the obedience of all of his creatures. He deserves the worship of all of his creatures. So because of the word, he starts with God and reasons from God to human behavior, and this causes him streams of tears. He refers to trembling in 120. My flesh trembles. The hairs stand up on the back of my neck. For fear of you, I'm afraid of your judgments. Some of you will enjoy the ocean this summer. 
Sometimes the ocean's very placid and calm, quite safe to frolic in. Other times the ocean is churned up. If you enter into a churned up ocean, you need to respect its power. You need to know what waves can do for, to you, what currents can do for you, what, what riptides can do. You have a healthy fear of this power, of this thing that you're in. I think that's what the psalmist is alluding to. The struggler, the one who's, indwelling, who's fighting indwelling sin, has a relationship with the Word of God where because it possesses him, he possesses these graces. Thirdly, he possesses desperate pleading. Again, let not iniquity have dominion over me. You sense the desperation? This pleading. He casts himself before the Lord in pleading prayer. 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. 132, turn to me, be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. And 133, keep steady my steps according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. He seems to be saying that life is this tiny, tiny balance beam. And he finds himself tempted to fall off on the one side, giving in to indwelling sin. On the other, to temptations from this out, giving in to sinners around him, the world. He's on a tiny balance beam. And the only one who can keep him on that is the Lord, steadying his steps. Where's his confidence in pleading for these things? He knows the power in the word of God to give life, to sustain him. 137, I am severely afflicted. It's one of those 35 allusions to his persecution. Give me life. Give me vitality. Ten times he makes this plea throughout the psalm. Cause me to live according to your word. What motivates such pleading? He's desperate of his own resources. Left to himself, he knows he's nothing. He will absolutely blow it. Blow it. How does he act on his pleading? See, it isn't enough just to pray. He adds to that, to his desperation, discipline. He prays and recalls what he's memorized. 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. Morning. 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Evening. 62, at midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. <laughs> It looks like he has a 24-7 relationship with God's Word. Some of you parents are saying, as if we're too busy. We work. We got the kids. We got school. We got meals. We are absolutely overwhelmed. There's just not enough time in the day. You're extremely pressed. Yes, you are. So mom and dad get together sometime today. Find a way to make space for the other. Several days a week, if not every day a week, find a way to make a little quiet space for the other to have some time with the Lord. Take care of the kids. Say, honey, go off. Here's 30 minutes. Just you open your Bible, meditate, read, rest, reflect, Eat that manna. The struggler is marked by his relationship with the word of God. Because it possesses him, what does he possess? 
Fourth, delight in the word. 129, your testimonies are wonderful. 143, trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Ten times he uses the word delight to describe God's word. Ten more times he says he loves them. Just how wonderful is the word of God to the psalmist? Well, 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So if you offered this person a check for a million dollars and said, I'll take your Bible from you in exchange for this, he would say, absolutely Never. 127, therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. See, as human beings, we understand delight, don't we? We We have a natural affinity and an attraction for things that are lovely, that are delicious, that are beautiful, that are helpful, that are pleasurable. So I want to explore this question for a moment. Why don't more of us find this kind of delight in God's Word? I'm a pastor. I talk to people struggling with sin all the time. And I hear from them all the time. I know the Bible's the Word of God. I just wish I had more time to read it, to spend time in it. Obviously, that's not happening because there's not the sort of delight, love, affection sense of need that the psalmist has. So let me just tease out a couple answers to the question, not to guilt you, not to heap condemnation, but to seek understanding. Why don't folks say they delight in God's word more? Well, there's an organic reason, and that is in all of us, there is a bias to do things in our own eyes, according to our own eyes. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. We have an innate affinity we have no innate and affinity for God's word. We, we love our own appraisal. We love our own autonomy. We don't naturally want to run under and sit under its authority. We just don't. So there's an organic problem within us. And if, if God has conquered that in you by the Holy Spirit and by Jesus being present in your life, praise God, it's still going to want to exert itself though. So there's an organic reason why we don't delight in God's word. Sometimes there's an environmental reason. You might say, Mike, I grew up in a home. There was no Bible in my home. Okay. How would you have an appetite for something you'd never seen? This church sends missionaries through an organization called Wycliffe Bible Translators to parts of the world to work with people groups who have no Bible in their language, and they are translating the Scriptures into the language of people who have no Bible. That's an environmental reason they take no delight in God's Word. Then there's a practical reason. Some of you would confess with brutal honesty, I don't think I need it. I've survived just fine without the Bible. There's a systemic reason we don't uh, cherish God's Word. We've read it, but we've really never acquired a taste for it. It's words on a page. It's not fundamentally different than reading the newspaper or some other interest. We've read it. We read it. But there's an, there's an invisible wall blocking the spirit who inspired that word and then pressing it, imprinting it, gripping our hearts with it. Maybe we need to pray more for the spirit to do that. And then there may be a functional reason why 
some of us don't delight in God's Word, and that is we just haven't taken the time, we don't have the discipline to read it consistently enough. Look at what he says in one on, in one thirty. He says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding. The word unfolding there is opening. So think of the Bible as one of those Christmas presents you get. It comes in a really big box. Take the lid off of that. There's a slightly smaller box inside of that. You take the lid off of that. There's a box inside of that. You unwrap that one. Then there's a box inside of that. You know what I'm talking about. Then you get down to this tiny little thing. The inexhaustible riches of God's Word can ultimately never be plumbed in this lifetime. Nonetheless, we need to take the time and create the discipline for it to unfold and to impart understanding. I think this is the principle at work here. We esteem things we value. We pursue things we think will be a benefit to us. That's why there's a sense in which part of this psalm is an infomercial on the benefits, the value of the Word of God. I'm thinking of 98 through 104. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it's ever with me. That's a really good thing, to know how to outsmart your enemies. 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, your testimonies, or my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I've kept your precepts. Probably an indicator this is a, a, a younger person. But by, because of the word of God, he's not ultimately dependent on older people. Is there value in the counsel of older people? Absolutely. 101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. 102, I don't turn aside from your rules. They've taught me. 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The pure pleasure of being rescued from a pattern of self-destruction without the knowledge of God's will, I'm going to destroy myself. Oh, thank God his word tells me what is bad for me, tells me what is good for me. And then you have this wonderful allusion to the safety of his life in 104. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Perhaps the text Jamie read earlier in the service from 2 Timothy 3 is, is Paul's way of, re, of summarizing this. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, the writings, of course what he's talking about at this point in church history is the Old Testament itself, is breathed out by God. This is the source. It comes from God. And is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. That word means to set upright on your feet. Sin has a way of knocking us down. The word of God has a way of getting us back on our feet in that where we feel secure, stable, able to do what God's called us to do on our feet and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That word complete there was a completely outfitted rescue boat. You're in trouble? Here comes the word of God. Everything you need, struggling, <laughs> is in the word of God. We call that the sufficiency of the word of God. The psalmist understands its power. We have this quote from Isaiah 55. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, 
God says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The efficacy of the word of God, not just the sufficiency, but the efficacy of the word of God. Perhaps Paul had that in mind when he encouraged the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We also thank God uh, constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but for what it really truly is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The word of God convicting, converting, convincing, consoling, mediating to them the gospel promises of Jesus, showing them what it looks like to be human, what God is like. Oh, my. So the word, the psalmist says, revives his heart like water, fertilizer, and sunshine to a plant. He experiences spiritual flourishing as he was designed. 154, plead my cause, redeem me, give me life according to your promise. Great is your mercy, Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life. Again, this pleading prayer, this desperate necessity, it all comes from God. That's a prayer you can be absolutely certain God will answer if you pray it. Give me life. Either new life, being born again by the word of God, or once you're born again, a sustaining of spiritual vitality through the word, the Lord mediating his presence, his goodness, his grace by the spirit working in your heart through his word. So this psalmist's utter dependence on God is expressed in 32. I run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So we ought to experience something, reading the Bible, of an enlarged heart, a greater place in our hearts for his commandments, his promises, his precepts, his presence. I think Jesus' prayer in John 17 sheds a brighter light on that plea. When Jesus prays to his Father for you and me and all his disciples and apostles, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is praying that you and I would have such a relationship with the Word of God that it was one of the principal vehicles, means of grace, that God is using to make us more like himself. And he had just promised in the prior chapter, John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So we're absolutely dependent on God's Spirit to give us an appetite for the Word of God, to give us understanding of the Word of God, and to create in us the resolve to obey the Word of God. The struggler, someone struggling with sin, has a very distinct relationship with the Word of God because it possesses him. What does he possess? Number five, a determination to obey. 134 and 135. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant. Teach me your statutes. So the struggler is a person who prays, Lord, I'm convinced my way, left to myself, will not bring about human 
thriving and flourishing as you've designed it. I was built for God. His word reveals that. He's convinced obedience is good for him and brings glory to God. Now, this phrase, the face of God shining, is emblematic of God's favor and his presence. How do you and me get to the point where we crave the face of God? We've got to meet the Lord in his word. So it would go like this. Seeing you, Lord, I want to be like you, as expressed in your commandments. Seeing you in your self-revelation, I want to mimic your excellence on this earth to bring glory to you. Seeing you, I love you, Lord. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. So you'll know there's a love for God that the word is creating, issuing in more love for God, issuing in obedience to him. Last one. Here's the portrait of a struggler. We're going to struggle with sin to the day we die. One way to describe the struggler is his relationship with the word of God because it possesses him. He possesses these graces. Here's the last one to focus on this morning. He possesses deliverance by grace. 132. Turn to me. Be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. 149. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. 156. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. His trust, his resting in, his casting himself upon the mercy of God, the grace of God, and the love of God reveals what? This is the cry of a person who knows the word of God cannot save him. His obedience to God's commands cannot make him right in God's sight. There's nothing he can do to cause God to look at him and say, you're absolutely acceptable in my sight. No amount of obedience can cancel your sin. It takes a cross. In 123, the psalmist writes, my eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Those eyes did not see what we now see. That the fulfillment of God's righteous promise, the fulfillment of God's love for mankind to save them, is Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us full of grace and truth, who revealed to us the Father perfectly, who himself embodied perfectly all the precepts of the law of God. Jesus lived the righteous life you and I don't have a prayer of ever living. When Jesus was tempted by the devil at the beginning of his ministry, he stood on the word of God in every temptation. He based his teaching on the word of God. He framed his ministry as a fulfillment of the word of God. He shed tears over the wayward sin of Israel. But unlike the psalmist, he did not ask his father to save him from his oppressors. No, he saved sinners like you and me by taking in his body the oppression of our sin. 
He said, Father, let that oppression fall on me. Let me be crushed under the weight of the sin of my people. So, beloved, where was mercy purchased? At his cross. Where was the love of God for you? Helpless, destitute of your own resources, secured at the cross. Where was the assured promise of forgiveness spoken? At the cross. Where was the assurance that our final deliverance from sin is secure? In his resurrection. This is the grace of the gospel. God loves me not based on my performance, not based on my relationship with the Word of God, not how much I love it, not how much I obey it, but He, based, he, he loves me based on His promise made to me in Jesus Christ. So the psalm ultimately points us to resting, finding, resting in, relishing Jesus. And when you do, you'll find yourself to be a struggler who loves the Word of God like this man. We are not struggling to be free. We're free to struggle. The grace of the gospel has set you free to struggle with confidence under the love of God, with the assurance of his favor, the certainty of his acceptance that this is a battle with an enemy that one day will be put away forever. And until then, oh, Jesus is with us, loving us, with us in the struggle, weeping with us, pleading, come to me, find me, rest in me, look at me, see what I've done for you, and then we're free to struggle. Let's pray. We're grateful, our Father, for a Savior who was tempted and always as we are yet without sin. Jesus, you leaned wholeheartedly with all your mind, soul, and strength on the Word of God. So place in us that DNA. Pour your love into our hearts. That in loving and seeing you, we would love and see you in your Word. May it be better to us than life. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hymn of response is taken from Psalm 119. It's number